And welcome back, everybody. This is the Northern Miner Podcast, and I am your host, Matthew Keevil. As usual, we are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do check out yukonminingalliance.ca to get updated on all the recent exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. And we are back in action. Uh, as mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a brief hiatus there. Uh, we missed one episode because uh, we were out of town. Well, I was out of town on a corporate retreat. Uh, so we didn't have an opportunity to put together an episode for you last week. But we're back in action this week with a really good lineup. Uh, a lot of good segments. Um, Leslie will be dropping by in the geology corner to talk with Dr. Nicholas Gardner, who is a research fellow at Western Australia's Curtin University. We will have that segment coming up in a little bit. Um, I will update us on a bit of the news, what's going on. On around the world. Um, it's actually been, from my point of view, a little slower on the mining company news side. Obviously, we've seen uh, some commodity movements, some uh, fairly large um, uh, news items coming out of the U.S. I was actually in Mexico when the announced softwood number, lumber announcement came through from Trump, which affected the dollar, and I was like exchanging currency down there, being like, oh God, the dollar's at 72 cents. This is horrible. Um, but uh, yeah, just go with the pesos. They were fine. Uh, but anyways, uh, yeah, so now that we're back, um, we'll start with a little bit of our macro, uh, and I will move through to uh, Leslie's awesome geology uh, segment a little bit later in the show. But first, let's crack through with a little bit of macro. Actually, probably a lot of macro because I got a couple of weeks I got to catch up on here. Uh, first, let's rock in with our commodity prices. Gold was trading at $1,256.90 per ounce at the time of recording. Silver was trading at $16.83 per ounce, while copper was at $2 and roughly 64 cents, or yes, cents per pound. <laughs> well, West Texas Intermediate Oil was off from when I last spoke with you uh, at $47.47. Per barrel. Uh, so what has been happening here? Uh, as noted, when we left, gold was sort of rocking a, a pretty significant high, uh, getting near 1280. Now we're at around a three-week low at about 1260 or below. Um, what we've been seeing is some of that uh, geopolitical fear that was rotating around North Korea has begun to erode. Uh, we do know that the U.S. Fed two-day meeting starts today. Today, well, physical gold ETFs were down 145,000 ounces on Monday. Uh, meanwhile, the base metal complex traded broadly higher this morning. Uh, at one point, copper traded up over $50 per ton on the news that uh, Freeport Grasberg workers were set to strike at the end of the month. Uh, U.S. President Donald Trump is expected to announce his infrastructure spending plan within the next few weeks. Uh, well, uh, LME zinc stocks were down 825,000 tons overnight. Uh, so we're seeing a little bit of that uh, that zinc tightening, as we'd mentioned in previous episodes. Uh, I'll touch a little bit later. Um, Another big investment by a rather large company, South 32 in Arizona Mining. Uh, news came down recently. Uh, as noted, I talked to uh, the president and CEO of Arizona Mining, Jim Gowans, a couple weeks ago on their uh, recent economic study. So rather timely news, uh, but they did make a significant investment, South 32 did. Um, as we know, that's the spinoff of BHP, uh, in excess of $100 million in an equity placement at over $2 per share. Uh, I believe that placement was at a 30% premium at the time of the deal. So uh, good news for Arizona mining and the Taylor deposit down at Hermosa. Uh, we'd covered that in depth a couple episodes ago if you want to uh, hop back and check out my interview with President and CEO Jim Gowan. Meanwhile, if we hop over to energy news, uh, there was uh, a little bit of a tidbit that came down in terms of uranium recently that I thought deserved a mention. Uh, the U.S. Department of Energy has reduced spot sales volume for the first time since 2009. Uh, on April 26, U.S. Energy Secretary Rick 
Perry signed a determination that cuts expected DOE uranium transfers by 37% in 2017, then 47% in 2018. Uh, so since 2009, the Department of Energy has placed over 40 million pounds of uranium into the market, including roughly 7 million pounds per year uh, in 2012 through 2014, uh, and 6.5 million pounds in 2015, and 5.5 million pounds in 2016. Uh, the move by Secretary Perry reportedly limits transfers to a maximum of 3.4 million pounds of uranium in 2017 and to a maximum of 3 million pounds of uranium in 2018. Furthermore, the Department of Energy has already placed about 1.4 billion pounds into the market in 2017. That means that only 2 million pounds will enter the market for the remainder of the year. Um, some uranium companies have noted that the DOE cutting transfers uh, by between 2.1 and 2.5 million pounds of uranium per year is constructive news for uranium producers. <laughs> Duh. Uh, as it comes on the heels of the, uh, Af we've talked about the Kazakh prom, the Kazakhstan announcing production cuts in seven, uh, 2017 totaling 5 million pounds. Uh, and there's been other production curtails, uh, including Cameco. Uh, we've talked about that at length. So we're seeing uh, a little bit of that tightening in the uh, uranium market. Uh, I got a note on this from Canaccord Genuity this morning. Uh, they noted that after an initial jump to above $26 per pound U308 following the Kazakh prom announcement, uh, the spot price has drifted back down to around $22.50 per pound on generally quote unquote light volumes. Uh, however, uh, they do note that activity could pick up in uh, as a number of market participants, including uh, several utilities, have highlighted that recent price levels are now attractive. Uh, Can uh, Canaccord's preferred uranium names include Cameco, uh, following last week's pullback on week Q1 results, uh, Uranium Participation Corp., NextGen Energy, Energy Fuels, and Denison Mines. And that pretty much wraps up our macro for the week. So, without further ado, let's get rocking. Uh, we will head over and uh, let Leslie take it away with the Geology Corner. Leslie Stokes, writer and geologist with The Northern Miner, and you're listening to our Geology Corner, a podcast that delves into the Earth's 4.6 billion year old history and the many metal deposits that were created along the way. So this week, we are going to be cracking into the potential flaws in the plate tectonic theory. Not even joking. And not only that, but also how metal explorers who work in rocks greater than 3.2 billion years ago might be looking at their geology all wrong. For the past four decades, the theory of plate tectonics has been a fixture in every geologist's understanding of how the Earth's crust glides across a planet and subducts beneath the continents. But what if the early Earth, and I'm talking about 3.5 billion years ago, what if it was just too hot for plate tectonics to work? A recent study published in the Nature Journal has added weight to the idea that the Earth's first continents never formed by subduction. So the process, you know, being the ocean crust diving underneath continents, and that's melting and creating a chain of volcanoes. So the study suggests that rather, the crust had formed from partially melting of abnormally thick ocean crusts that could have only developed under really extreme temperature conditions in the ancient Earth. Nicholas Gardner 
a research fellow at Western Australia CET Curtin University, and one of the authors of the paper, Earth's first stable continents did not form by subduction, he dialed in via Skype from his office in Perth to talk to me about rocks and all things Archean. One of the key things about the early Earth is that the mantle or the Earth itself was hotter than it is today. And plate tectonics is an expression of the Earth trying to lose heat. Heat is generated within by radioactive decay and within the Earth's um, uh, lower mantle. Um, if you have a hotter, hotter Earth, you you get a lot more melting. And so, after initial accretion, where maybe the Earth cooled down and then it started to heat up again, we think the mantle. If you think felsic, so granitic crust comes from melting of basalts, sort of oceanic crust, that comes from melting of mantle. So if you melt a lot of mantle, you can create a thick sort of basaltic layer, and we're talking 50, 70 kilometers thick, within, which is considerably thicker than modern oceanic crust. Uh, and within that, we think that that's where you then got secondary melting of that basaltic layer at certain depths um, to generate more sort of granitic crust. And the, the granite, granitic type crust you we commonly find in Archean terrains, early Archean terrains, so how did they reach that conclusion? Well, he and a team of scientists collected samples from basalts at the base of one of these really thick basaltic plateaus in Western Australia's Pilbara Craton. If you don't know the Pilbara Craton, it's one of the oldest remaining pieces of Earth's first crust. Anyway, they took those samples and they subjected them to a variety of pressures and temperatures. And they discovered that elemental signatures in the melts generated from the tests were the same as signatures found in granitic batholiths, also seen in the Pilbara. So in other words, you can create the exact same kind of rocks by melting the rocks they're hosted in. And that's pretty mind-blowing. It comes down to this idea of how did the first continental crust form? What environment was it in? How did it stabilize? Because this crust forms the nucleus of cratons around which more modern continental crust is formed. So it's really the story of our continents. The story of our continents indeed. But what does that mean for all the mineral deposits found within these Archean Age cratons? Some of these early continents make up a whole whack of Canada. And it's where explorers tend to focus in when they're hunting for orogenic gold deposits and magmatic nickel copper. So this theory might be important for them to know about too. The paper was focused very much on early Archean processes, so 3.5, 3.2 GA, that, that kind of time scale. Mm -hmm. um, and we envisage that the greenstone belts that, that you see in the, in the Pilbara, for example, where you have these domal granites, um, some people talk about a process of subduction. So you have eruption of greenstone as, as, as basalts. Um, they then, um, if you like, uh, you have a doming episode where the granites rise, the greenstones sink, and you have this weird sort of... Um, textural pattern within the greenstones where they where they are sinking between the granites because of density differences. Mm -hmm. The Yilgarn Craton, which is where you, we find a lot of the gold mineralization in Western Australia, is actually younger. So it's about 2.7 GA rather than 3.5. So some people think that, if you like, more modern orogenic processes, mountain building processes, were occurring in the Yilgarn at that age. And, and the pattern of greenstones is distinct. We don't have these these sort of granite domes in in the Yilgarn. We actually have um, continental terrains, which some people think were sort of terrains accreted together, just as you find on 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 the modern Earth or over the last sort of fifteen hundred 
um, million years. And so the, the orogenic, uh, sorry, the gold mineralization in the Yugan is, is very much an orogenic style of mineralization. So they are hosted in the greenstones, but we think the mineralization was later and the greenstones are just acting as a host rock, just like you, you may find or, uh, orogenic gold in sort of modern slate belt type, uh, type rocks today. Uh, so in that sense, that would point towards an orogenic process, which is more more like modern plate tectonics than than going back to three and a half and going back to the 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 um, the, the sort of thickened plateau uh, we talked about earlier. So the Ugal gold mineralization, I think a lot of people think is much more like modern style gold mineralization. So you don't necessarily need a a sort of thickened plateau to give you that that type. Mm. Um, but the nickel deposits you find in the Ugal. They are from Clematiites, which are hotter, uh, hotter type of lavas, which are related to the hotter early earth. Um, and so I think there's probably more of a genetic relationship between a hotter early earth bringing up mantle type metals and, and the, um, the Clematiitic flows there. Gardner says that the theory of sagduction and deep crustal melting could explain why the greenstone belts in the Pilbara wrap around these domes of granites, whereas in the Yilgarn, the pattern of greenstone belts appear different, and they're more related to subduction and more modern plate tectonics. I get it. But if Nicholas and his team are correct in their thinking, then wouldn't this hotter earth also impact things like how the rocks bend and break? As a as benchmark, the... Um we talk about the mantle potential temperature, so the, the if you like, the, the, the gradient at the surface of the, of the top of the mantle was probably about 200 degrees C hotter in the early Archean than it is today. So one of the big effects that will have, not just on melting, is, is, is increasing a lot of ductile deformation rather than brittle deformation. Things are just hotter, so things will flow more than, than just naturally, um, you know, the surface of the Earth, you, you get obviously um, fracture and break. In terms of how that that that, uh, that affects things like earthquakes or, or whatever, I'm not I'm not so sure. Um, it's difficult to comment on that, but um, it, you know the idea that things are hotter, I think, plays a, has to feed into not just the geochemical evolution, but the structural evolution uh, and and the mechanics of, of the upper mantle and, and whatever crust was being generated at the time. Absolutely. Um, I guess by the Proterozoic, things were probably cooling down a bit more but again you know we, we know that oceanic crust has probably got uh thinner over time so when people look at subduction processes in the late proterozoic they talk about sort of enhanced subduction erosion because oceanic plates are thinner they crack more they can scrape more stuff off the, the continental margin if you like oceanic plates in the early proterozoic were thicker so therefore maybe subduction was shallower than it is today so there's a lot of things that, that, that need to understand. You know, the geothermal gradients, you're right, are feeding into a lot of structural and tectonic geology as well as the geochemistry. Okay, so subduction versus sagduction, bending over breaking. You know, the early Earth may have looked really wildly different than it does today. And definitely something for a geologist to ponder when scouting out rocks as old as these in the hunt for mineral deposits. But how accepted is this theory anyhow amongst the peers? So I think it's always a controversial topic. As I said, we're, we're not we're not claiming to be the first people to to have have, have come up with the idea that, that there was a if you like non-plate tectonics. We're we're just adding to to one side of the debate. I mean, there's there's a number of camps. There are people that think that subduction may have happened since the dawn of time, as soon as you had early Earth generation, uh, early early continental crust. Uh, there are people that think that 
continental crust goes back to 4.3, 4.4 billion years. Um, so it's actually a very controversial area. Um, I know that my colleagues have had a few email exchanges with some, some I guess, some big names in the science who have strong-held views um, on the other side of the fence that maybe think that, that we're reading too much in the geochemistry. Um, one of the, as I said earlier, one of the beauties about working in the early Earth is, is the, the, the evidence is very sort of ephemeral in a way that you, you, you have to look at trace, trace element evidence, you have to look at isotopic evidence, you're using a lot of geochemistry, you, you, it, you can't see these processes operating today as so you're trying to look back through time, back through maybe multiple phases of deformation and um, alteration to try and look at the original chemical signature of these rocks to try and understand what exactly was going on. And I guess the, the other point to make is that, that there's no reason why you can't have, I mean, a lot of people work in West Greenland and they're convinced there was subduction as in sort of modern style plate tectonics happening there at 3.7, 3.8. There's no reason why, you know, on one side of the planet you couldn't have a thick oceanic plateau as we are proposing. And on the other side, you may, may have some kind of subduction. You know, it's not like everything changed over one Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. So, so different parts of the planet are, are pointing towards different lines of evidence. So it does get rather confusing. Ah, the never-ending search of science. There's nothing like a really good geology banter to get your week going. So big thanks to Nicholas and his team, and thanks to all you listening in to this week's Geology Corner. Hope you have a great week. Talk to you next. Welcome back to studio. I'd like to uh, take this opportunity to thank Leslie and Dr. Nicholas Gardner for swinging on by to talk about the evolution of the Earth's first crust. That sounds so cool. Uh, but we will continue to uh, seek out geoscientists worldwide uh, to, you know, promote this sort of discussion. Maybe uh, we'll be the ones that serendipitously unveil some new technology that leads to a new uh, geological tool or discovery mechanism that lets us find, uh, you know, the next big porphyry or something like that. So it's exciting to keep those discussions moving along. And uh, we thank Leslie and uh, Nicholas once again uh, for putting that together for us. So, forging right on ahead, uh, just a couple more topics before we wrap up the show for the week. Uh, first, coming up soon, is our South America special in paper. Uh, so you will probably see a fairly steady stream of interesting South America-centric stories coming down our newswire in the uh, subsequent week here. Um, what I zeroed in on was a company called Camino Minerals. Uh, now, this company uh, came across my desk mostly because they just blew the doors off uh, with stock gains uh, last week after they reported a really impressive uh, intercept, uh, reverse circulation intercept from their Los Chapitos project, uh, iron oxide, copper, gold in southern Peru. And then I say they blew the doors off. We're talking about jumping from about 30 cents a share to a high of around $2.15 a share on April 21st. Uh, Camino was trading at about a buck 14 a share at the time of recording uh, and maintains nearly 37 million shares outstanding for a $46.7 million market capitalization. So this is one of those things where you're like, 
it's sort of flying under the radar and then they hit this hole and this is a uh, hole chr002 uh, and within this hole they cut 106 meters of 1.3 percent copper which ended in mineralization uh, and that started from a downhole depth of about 188 meters um, so this is an interesting one obviously that's going to catch the market's attention pretty eye-popping intercepts um, other intercepts from this uh, report include a uh, hole one which cut 76 meters of 0.47 percent copper with a sub of a higher grade of 22 meters of 6.67 percent copper so these are interesting really interesting looking holes and uh, what makes Los Chapitos which is their project fairly unique is we are not talking about the high Andes in Peru here we're talking about really uh, favorable topography uh, road access uh, apparently Ken was telling me uh, Kenneth McNaughton the president and CEO of Camino uh, that you can basically see the ocean from their <laughs> from their property uh, he was also informing me that there's not a lot of agriculture or uh, cattle farming or anything there so they're they've had a really uh, a really good time interacting with local communities and getting their social license in order uh, so they recently did that and obviously they they started drilling um, what they've realized however is that uh, diamond drilling would be much preferable to reverse circulation so they're actually uh, when I talked to Ken I think on Monday they were bringing the diamond drills right into Los Chapitos to follow up on the Adriana zone uh, surface oxide mineralization which is what they cut uh, in that rather impressive 1.3% copper interval uh, so I had a chance to sit down with Ken um, and talk a little bit about the history of the project and it's funny, um, people will probably be mostly familiar uh, with the team over at Camino because many of them worked uh, at Pridium Resources on the Bruce Jack project and prior to that with Silver Standard Resources and Canplatz Resources. Uh, so you'll probably know the names, uh, for example, Perry Durning, Ken Conkin, um, uh, and Ken himself, uh, who have sort of uh, moved together as a uh, how do you say, uh, exploration team that looks at uh, opportunities globally. Um, and, and through Silver Standard, Ken was saying they're quite familiar uh, with Peru and they had maintained a, uh, a sort of private uh, exploration generator down there called MinQuest, which is where they identified Los Chapitos um, and subsequently uh, came to a deal with a vendor, a private Peruvian vendor, uh, to put this together uh, uh, publicly. Uh, so it's an interesting looking deal moving forward. Uh, one of the things uh, that Ken was very careful to uh, have me stress was that it was a one hole it's the first hole very interesting mineralization but they've got a lot to follow up on in terms of understanding lithologies and things like that but uh, according to uh, the team, they will be drilling fairly continuously now moving forward at Los Chapitos. Uh, they had previously raised $2.1 million in February, uh, but uh, subsequent to this rather impressive hole and obviously the stock uh, activity and price surge, uh, they did announce on May 2nd they will be raising additional funds uh, in the form of a $2.5 million uh, financing uh, private placement priced at $0.95 cents per unit. Um, so they will have the money to move forward, though the the uh, uh, previous financing at 2.1 million would reportedly uh, see them through the diamond drill program they tend they intend to do uh, at their Adriana and Caddy. Uh, targets. Uh, so an interesting one moving forward, and obviously a lot of people, I got a lot of calls on this because they're like, hey, this stock went insane. Why is this not in the paper yet? I'm like, it's coming. It's going to be in the paper. It's going to be in the paper. Uh, so I had a chance to sit down with uh, Kenneth McNaughton and just talk a little bit about where they're going and what sort of the in uh, exploration thesis may be at Los Chapitos. So I will have a long form article uh, about that in our South American feature that should be coming up uh, digitally later this week. So do surf by northernminer.com and check that out. Uh, well, on the, on the uh, subject, please do consider subscribing. Uh, it's a streaming deal. Surf over to the website, hit that subscribe button in the uh, top left-hand corner of the website. Uh, you can get us in paper, you can get us digitally, or as I recommend it, get both because it's totally worthwhile. 
And while you are at it, loyal listener, please do uh, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and check out our YouTube account. Plus, please do rate this podcast on iTunes because that helps us out a ton. And just to wrap up the show, uh, some good news coming out of the Yukon. And thanks again to our sponsor, the Yukon Mining Alliance. Uh, last week, uh, we, we had talked about this previously, probably last year it was a really big topic, um, that the Yukon was at the risk of losing its last operating mine to closure. And that is Capstone's Minto Mine uh, near Pelly Crossing. Uh, now, uh, we got some great news, as mentioned last week, that uh, Capstone has announced uh, that Minto will be staying open through 2020. Uh, so that's some awesome news. I know a lot of really good people who work at at the site, um, and I've been up there a number of times. Uh, so it's just really great to hear that Capstone has opted, likely due to uh, rising copper prices and a more bullish investment outlook on the red metal, uh, to keep Minto running. Uh, so it's uh, great news for everybody up in the Yukon. Congrats to everybody that's involved. Uh, it's really good to hear. Um, uh, that combined with, uh, you've seen a lot of these majors come up there. We've talked about that at length as well. Uh, last week, we talked to the president and CEO of Attack Resources, Graham Downs, about Barrick's investment at their uh, Rackla project. So exciting times in the Yukon. Once again, I will be heading up there uh, for the Yukon tours in uh, mid-July uh, to check out all these projects, see uh, all the uh, the new activity going on up there thanks to a lot of investment uh, from major companies and uh, all the exciting exploration and development activity. So looking forward to that. Uh, I will have uh, regular updates as usual. Um, but uh, just to close up, the last thing is that next week, lo and behold, we will be in London, England for the Canadian Mining Symposium, possibly the most exciting mining event event of the year, if I do say so myself. Uh, we've got some absolutely great speakers. Obviously, as we said, Robert Freeland, Lucas Lendin, uh, David Groffel from Gold Corp, Kelvin Jusinski from Barrick. Uh, we've got some great uh, roundtables. I will be moderating a panel on capital allocation and deployment, so we'll be talking about some of this activity where majors are reinvesting into juniors. We'll be talking about the best way forward to maintain lower operating cash costs, and we'll be talking about a lot of really exciting stuff. Um, and I've got some great people on my panel, uh, Rob McEwen, uh, Edward Stirk from BMO, um, Patrick Anderson. We've got some great people, so it's going to be an awesome time. Uh, I will be recording the podcast live from London, uh, but we will put something uh, together for you for next Monday so we won't miss a beat next week. Um, but yeah, that has been the Northern Miner Podcast, and I am your host, Matthew Keevil. We do appreciate your listenership. Please come back next week, and I will talk to you then. Bye.